try to tell patients in the beginning that I'm not the kind of physician that pulls punches, that we may find ourselves at a point where I have to deliver bad news or, or discuss difficult uh, aspects. I, I think the key to giving this news is to deliver it from a point of caring with compassion and understanding yeah. and even patience. While it can be devastating for a cancer patient to find out that the disease is progressing or that there's a serious complication related to their treatment, if I let myself, who is your physician, be devastated at the same time, then yeah. I cannot yeah. really help you. Hello, and welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator for the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Julie is wrapping up her work in Australia this week, so today I have the honor of introducing our guest. For this week, Julie recorded a conversation with Dr. Jacob McGee, who treats women's cancers at the London Health Sciences Centre. Dr. McGee was trained at the University of Toronto and the University of Ottawa, and he also holds a master's degree in public health. Dr. McGee's clinical practice focuses on patients with gynecologic cancers. This specialization requires many different surgical skills, from minimally invasive surgical techniques for the treatment of cervical cancer to maximally invasive surgery for the management of ovarian cancer. Dr. McGee is also an active researcher and is a member of the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences Cancer Research Group, made up of doctors and scientists from across Canada. Somehow, he also manages to have a family life with five kids and a dog named Jazz. Jake is also Julie's doctor, and he has been treating her for ovarian cancer since 2014. Julie wanted to record this podcast with Jake to share the many difficult but important conversations they have had in the past three and a half years on a subject that affects so many Canadian families. Julie has taken a little time out of her very busy Sydney schedule to elaborate on why this conversation is so important to her. Hi, Julie here. The latest episode of my podcast is a conversation between myself and Dr. Jake McGee, my oncologist. We talk about how our public health system offers cancer care to the large and growing numbers of Canadians affected by this disease. But the heart of this podcast is how doctors and patients like Jake and myself talk about cancer. Jake and I have talked a lot about cancer in the three and a half years since I have been his patient. Discussions about treatment options, about realistic expectations, and about staying positive and getting on with living my life. I wanted to share this frank conversation with a larger audience through the podcast. The most important reason I recorded this conversation is because I want to encourage a more open dialogue about how we talk about cancer in our families, in our workplaces, and even in our schools. Hello. Hello, Dr. McGee. Hey, how are you? Julie calling. I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Thank you very much indeed for doing this today. This is going to be a slightly different podcast to our usual focus because today's conversation, because it's with you as a medical professional and specifically a gynecological oncologist, is going to take a little bit of a different direction, but I think the focus is still essentially the same, which is how we provide essential services to Canadians in a fair and accessible way. The first thing that 
I really need to ask you, Dr. McGee, and I'm very curious about your answer, is you are a highly specialized doctor. You could choose to work south of the border, and I'm sure that you would probably make loads more money, but instead you're working in a public health system. So can you tell me a bit about why? Yeah, so I think the decision to work in a public health system was never actively undertaken. It was more the result of having been born in Canada and Mm -hmm. in that system. Uh, At no point in my training to be a physician or even in my medical career to date have I ever really made decisions based upon how much money I might make or might not make. Well, I have no doubt that I could be um, earning more, and I think my earning potential would be greater south of the border. I've never really considered going to the U.S., but I don't want to talk too much about remuneration. I think the really interesting part of your question has to do with the public health system that I work in. I believe that a public health system is an incredible resource for citizenry of Canada and myself and my family included. And when I look to the U.S., it, it pains me to, to, to see the way the Trump administration is dismantling progress of uh, yes. Obama area initiatives, era initiatives. I think of things like Obamacare and, and what that means for people mm. in the margin of society. While I treat people from all strata of society, I'm pleased to say that their treatment is almost never dictated by what is in their wallets. Yes. People at the edges of our communities, uh, be it because of finances or marginalization in some other sense, uh, I really believe that the care most physicians offer in Canada is done with that patient's best interest at heart. You know, I'm, I'm interested in how you say that in a way this was an obvious decision for you because you were born and raised in Canada. Because I think another part of that is that, and I feel the same way as somebody who grew up in the UK, which has a public health system, it's very difficult for us to imagine a different system. I mean, is it possible for you to imagine even being in a system that treated people who had and didn't treat people who had not? I feel like when I think about that, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, I, I, in some ways, I feel selfish because I'm, I'm thinking about personal gain over mm. what it is I was maybe trained to do as a physician, which you know, like a skill set, never had a, a price tag associated with it. Right. And right. so maybe that's that's part of my difficulty. And you know, uh, familiarity is comfort. <laughs> <laughs> it is that too. Yeah. So we also both know that providing uh, high-quality cancer care, which is where you work both adequately and also equally to Canadians, is a very hard thing to do. This is, this is very expensive treatment in many cases. Can you talk a bit about how well you think that Canada's doing with providing cancer care at this point and um, maybe say something about what you find frustrating about the system? Great. Yeah. I mean, I should I should uh, qualify anything I might say by saying that, you know, no way are, are my opinions a reflection of uh, the gynecologist of Canada or, or the institution that I work at now. We, we know you're speaking in your personal capacity. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think where <laughs> Canadians can access health care, I, I think there is uh, equality in, in what is delivered. It is the accessing the, the right physician or that health care or that service that is the real issue. So in Canada, we have tremendous challenges imposed by the simple geography of our country. We need to work over the last few years with uh, CPAC, which is the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer. And we defined a document uh, that really laid out the standards for the delivery of oncologic care as it relates to gynecology. What was neat about this committee is that we had representation from all regions in Canada. And what became clear is that the greatest impediment to providing subspecialist care, which is what I, I do, 
is the sheer distance some patients must travel to access the right position right. for their ailment. Yeah. Now, when a patient comes uh, into my clinic at Victoria Hospital in London, they benefit from seeing a physician who only deals with their type of cancer. By virtue of the simple fact that I'm immersed in gynae cancers all day long, every day, they benefit from the sheer volume of the very specific surgical procedures I perform, the skill set and the knowledge, the skill set that repetition and specificity can foster. Now, when you get centralization of subspecialty services uh, like cancer care delivery, we know that outcomes are improved. We have data from the UK um, that, that show that there are clearly better oncologic outcomes. Cancer Care Ontario here in Ontario has done a good job of centralizing services, and I believe that translates into better, more expert care. In mm -hmm. other parts of the country, however, it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a big country, and, you know, I have to travel two hours to see you in London, and I'm sure that's nothing compared to the distances that patients in some parts have to travel. Oh, for sure. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have frustrations working as a physician in Ontario. Um, I'd like there to be more flexibility within the system to provide me with, say, surgical resources I need to get cases done in a timely fashion. Mm. The way our system is set up, physicians sometimes must compete for the same resource. And when we compete, yeah. a patient is having a surgical treatment for a cancer is not necessarily seen as a priority over someone having surgery for benign disease. Let's move to a slightly different topic here. And this comes, this question comes out of my own experience as a patient in the healthcare system. And, you know, I have learned over the years, as I'm sure many other people listening to the podcast who've been patients in the system have learned, that it's important to do a lot of self-advocacy, that advocating for particular kinds of treatment and trying to advocate for treatment as quickly as possible is very important and it does make a difference. And I find myself often very conflicted about this. We've talked about this before. Uh, you know, I feel like my ability to advocate for myself, which has definitely produced, you know, some very positive outcomes for myself and my family, in some ways is a little unfair because I know there are other people out there who don't advocate in the same way or perhaps don't have family or friends weighing in on their behalf. So I often wonder, you know, what does this look like from your perspective? Because you're going to see all kinds of different patients, some who advocate, you know, annoyingly strongly like me and others who don't advocate at all. So, you know, what do you do with that? Okay, well, those are your words, not mine. I've never said annoying, Joey. <laughs> Um, you would be allowed to. <laughs> oh, okay, thanks. Uh, so undoubtedly, some patients are better self-advocates than others. Uh, the ability to advocate on your own behalf relates to a whole host of things, your social status in life, your level of education and intelligence, past experience in dealing with authority, your ability to stay calm in an unequal power relationship. Innumerable past experiences are going to influence how you behave when you see your doctor. Yeah. And some patients simply know how to advocate on their behalf but others do not. Uh, a common denominator to those who cannot advocate on their behalf is isolation. I really do not like seeing a patient alone in the clinic because if they are yeah. alone when they come to see me, I fear they're alone in other aspects of yeah. their life. Yeah. I, I'm sometimes amazed at a patient's ability to stay calm when I deliver bad news or try to obtain consent for a complex surgical procedure. Other times I'm just made by an obvious lack of comprehension or appreciation of what it is mm. I'm trying to tell them, the conversation I'm trying to have. So when I see a patient who does not advocate well for themselves, I see their vulnerability and that they are relying on me to direct them towards the best decision for their care. 
Sometimes they're not obvious best choices when it comes to decisions regarding cancer treatments, but more often than not, there is a best decision to be made amidst the sea of difficult options. If I have a patient, particularly someone who I see as vulnerable, um, who makes a decision that someone in my position who would never make, so me being an informed, somewhat intelligent individual, so if I see someone going right when I would always go left, then mm. bells go off for me, and I, I try to slow the decision-making down. I might reserve that decision until a later appointment or get the patient to see one of my colleagues. At these times, I also try to involve other people in the in the treatment process, and this is where really multidisciplinary care comes to the fore. Yeah. Uh, my patients are lucky in that I work with a dedicated oncology nurse. She gets to know them as well as uh, uh, we have a nurse case manager who really helps at every point in their cancer journey. We also yeah. have excellent social workers as part of our team. So I do think that someone's ability to be an advocate influences the care that they might receive. And uh, mm-hmm. what the system can do is reinforce the notion that vulnerabilities come in many different forms. Fortunately, the medical students that I see coming through the system now are increasingly well-rounded individuals, and they come to us with a whole host of life experiences. And, and I think that helps them to relate to, to people from other sort of social strata. And people who are, uh, you know, for example, people who are really uh, relatively disenfranchised or, or from walks of life that are different from their own. And I think our medical schools today do an excellent job of exposing students to the social side of medicine as well as to the more traditional medical teaching. Well, that's that's really interesting. And actually, I'd like to come back to that point in a minute, Jake, if that's okay. Um, because, uh, you know, I think it is really interesting, just as it is in law, to look at the new generation and just how different they are and how differently they're being trained, perhaps, from those of us who were trained in the system 10, 20, 30 years ago. But I, but I want to ask you another question first, which is, is another one that I feel very curious about your answer to, which is that you work as a gynecological oncologist, which means you treat women's cancers, and many of these cancers, including the cancer that I have, ovarian cancer, they don't have clear routes to treatment or to cure. And that means, I'm assuming, that you must, even with your level of skill and knowledge and all of your training and experience, you're still limited, I suppose, by science in terms of what you can actually do for your patients when they're facing these realities. So I'm wondering, you know, what what was it that went into a decision to do this particular type of work, work that you knew would have some very dark sides to it because you would be working in a situation in which you might be limited in how much you could do for your patients? It's true that many of the patients I treat have progression of their disease and they ultimately go on and they die from these diseases uh, or diseases that are directly related to their cancer. And and this is a really frustrating at times um, depressing aspect of the work I do. So often I take care of patients. I develop a a really intense relationship with them through their ups and downs over time. Mm -hmm. And then at some point I have to step back as their cancer journey comes to an end. In the beginning, particularly, I found this really challenging, and at times, even now, I struggle with it. But more often now, I'm grateful that I got to play a role at all in whatever happiness they were able to achieve with the time that they ended up having. 
In the beginning, what probably attracted me to this specialty was the satisfaction of mastering a complex surgical skill set. The re reality is, though, that um, that skill set is a small aspect of what it means to be a good gynecologist. Right. The skills are important, but how those skills are delivered in the context of each patient's distinct reality is the real challenge. When someone is faced with a cancer diagnosis, sometimes really amazing things happen. If a cancer diagnosis gives us one thing, it's clarity about what is important in our lives. I admire it when I see patients uh, carry on with life even when their cancer is not cooperating. I get to witness this sort of integrity of purpose, purpose and I find it incredibly rewarding. I feel like it's, it's good for my own uh, vitality or my own soul. Plus, I get to help some uh, really incredible people stay alive and maintain a high quality of life by virtue of the treatments that I can provide. And in the helping, it's not just the patient that is benefiting. To make it a bit more personal, when you and Bernie came into my office, it became pretty clear to me uh, early on that he absolutely adores you. And there's something incredibly fulfilling in helping to keep that love affair going. What is most satisfying about my work as an oncologist is that I'm plugged into this humanity, and, and I get to be a positive part of one of the most, albeit poignant, points in an individual's life. And finally, patients often express a tremendous amount of gratitude for the work that I, that I am able to do, and, and that's uplifting. We like that as physicians. Finally, I think I work in a tertiary care setting, and being in an academic setting, I'm surrounded by medical students and resident trainees all the time. And working with the medical trainees means that I'm constantly connected to energized, enthusiastic people who approach even mundane situations yeah. with a kind of wonder and excitement. It's like having a whole bunch of kids around all the time. When my work is really emotionally draining or even depressing, I'm constantly reminded that there's a dual purpose in every interaction. Not only am I addressing the needs of, of the patient, someone like yourself, I'm also teaching the trainee how to address the needs of the next right. patient. Right. And helping that student kind of fulfill their potential to be an effective physician, the best physician they can be, there's satisfaction in that as well. Well, that that answer sort of blew me away a little bit. I'm just recovering over here. And, of course, you know that I love him back. But just to kind of go a little bit further with this question, Jake, because, you know, as everybody must now realize, listening to this, you're not just any doctor, you're my doctor. And I'm very happy that you're my doctor, and I think we've got to know each other quite well over the past three years, and we've had some difficult but important conversations about what lies ahead to me, for me. And one of the things that this interview obviously reinforces for the rest of the world, but I have known now for a while, is that you are really good at both talking to me about my realities that I face as someone with a chronic cancer, but at the same time explaining that there are questions you can't give me a clear answer to. I always have a million questions for you, and you know, you can't always answer all of those questions, so we talk a lot, but you are very honest and truthful with me about what you can and can't answer, and that's something that I value very highly. And I often come away from an appointment with you wondering, did you get trained to do this, or is this just your kind of natural curiosity and interest in people that enables you to be this transparent? Because I have to tell you that I have had a relationships with lots of doctors now, and none of them have the ability that you do to talk. 
So do you think that this comes out of your training? Do you think that the students who are coming out now are really being, as you had mentioned earlier, prepared to talk to people from all walks of life? Does it come from, as I say, a kind of instinctive curiosity without any training? Where does it come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't I can't really pinpoint uh, um, what the training was or, or when it happened. I mean, I, I do remember back, uh, I trained in Ottawa in medical school and residency, and certainly in, in medical school, part of the curriculum did focus on how to talk to patients. And, and, and this is a focus at most medical schools. The curriculum here in London uh, at Western, it includes in the undergraduate uh, medical training phase uh, aspects of communication. As an example, as a, as a clinical educator, I participate in the physician skills development course uh, here in London, and this is where medical yeah. students interview standardized patients, and these are trained actors. Right, yeah. And they have challenging yeah. histories and, and clinical presentations, so these, these sorts of scenarios definitely help. The reality is, though, your ability as a communicator is shaped by so many aspects of, of your life that really predate medicine and then yeah. continue to develop while you're in the specialty. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Now... You ask a lot of questions, but when you do ask your questions, you do it from perspective of someone who seems genuinely uh, like they are genuinely trying to understand what's going on. And so I don't mind. So I always like your question. But there are patients that that just don't ask questions or that want to yes. remain in the dark about what is going on in their cancer journey. So what do you do then? Well, so I, I tell patients in the beginning, or I try to tell patients in the beginning, that I'm not the kind of physician that pulls punches, that we may find ourselves at a point where I have to deliver bad news or, or discuss difficult uh, aspects. I, I think the key to giving this news is to deliver it from a point of caring with compassion and understanding yeah. and even patience. While it can be devastating for a cancer patient to find out that the disease is progressing or that there's a serious complication related to their treatment, if I let myself, who is your physician, be devastated at the same time, then I cannot really help you. You know, as human beings, we have this tremendous capacity for suffering, but we also have a deep appreciation for kindness and kindness in delivering news that may be devastating and can have a tempering effect. Yes. For patients yes. that don't ask questions or, or, or don't ask the right questions, uh, they don't want to know what is going on, being honest and caring, delivering that message in the straightforward manner as I can, it's been an effective technique for me. Yes. But when I feel I'm not reaching a patient, and, and the reality is I don't reach every patient, um, that I'm not getting them to where they need to be, it's at these times that I try to bring in other members of the team, and I'm hoping really right. to connection it somewhere along the line with someone else so that we can arrive at where we need to be. Right, so they can find someone that can talk to them about someone it, even if it's not can you. Help be their advocate. Yeah. Um, for me, it's, it's easier when a patient asks questions, but I, I suppose I have techniques, and these are techniques that maybe I've stolen from other physicians I've worked with or that I've developed my own through trial and error, and these help me get patients to where they need to be. Unfortunately, though, you don't get through to every patient the way you would like to. When patients don't ask questions, part of my job is direct, to direct them towards where they need to be. And as mm-hmm. I said, this takes time, it takes patience. And these are things that in our healthcare system aren't always available in great supply. Sometimes patients do, do not respond well to, uh, to me discussing the reality, but I try and remind myself that that is my job. I tell mm-hmm. patients that there's always room for hope when it comes to their cancer, but we have to be realistic at the same time. You know, when I when I say something like that, if a patient bristles at the discussion or closes up, you know, sometimes we have to revisit that at a, at a subsequent visit down at the road. At a different time, yeah. yeah. 
acceptance of their situation is a part of the process and for some for some that takes more time or requires the patient to revisit things with someone with whom they trust maybe their family doctor for example and as i mentioned earlier i always encourage patients to bring a family member or friend to appointments and hopefully that person can be of assistance but when they don't and i feel like they're not grasping the gravity of their situation i occasionally organize things like family meetings meetings which brings everyone into the same room and oh that's an interesting idea yeah yeah so they can hear it more easily. Well, I remember, and I'm just going to, for the record, repeat um, the deal that you and I made a while ago now, which is that your job is to try to keep me alive and my job is to go on living. And I think that that deal has done us pretty well so far. And I'm grateful, very grateful for the openness that enables us to have that deal. Well, I, and I, I appreciate it as well as a physician because I, I think it um, it uh, defines what my role is in a much clearer sense. Thank you so much for this discussion today, Dr. McGee, and please enjoy your birthday tonight. <laughs> Thanks. You're not you're not going to sing for me. Well, I would, but you wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah, maybe the podcast isn't long enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Bye. I think anybody listening to that interview would agree that it's a pretty powerful conversation between Julie and Dr. McGee. Now, at this time, Julie is still in Australia while we're recording this debrief session. So what we've done is asked one of our wonderful uh, research assistants, Sandra Shushani, to join me today to have conversation related to that interview. So Sandra, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. And I know Julie is too. So I just want to begin by saying I know you and myself as well as with a lot of people at this point have experience with cancer, whether it's personally or through somebody in their family or through a friend. Uh, Most recently for me, my uncle passed away about six years ago of multiple myeloma. Uh, Sandra, could you speak a little bit about uh, your experience with your family and cancer? Unfortunately, I've had a very similar experience. My uncle passed away three years ago. He was actually a leukemia survivor for about 20 years, but succumbed to sarcoma. I would say it took about three months, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And it was was a shock and endless grief for us because he was pinnacle of our family and very loved by all of us. And he was one of my older uncles. I come from a very large family of 13 (laughs) aunts and uncles. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was it was an experience that you obviously wish no one else would see and it's something that teaches you the importance of family and support and obviously appreciating what you have in life and you grow from it definitely, but it also teaches you how to deal with the conversations surrounding mm-hmm. cancer and the narrative around it. Absolutely, and I mean that's one of the probably the biggest theme in in this interview that Julie had with Dr. McGee, this issue of how we talk about cancer in our society. It's something... It's very yeah. It's very difficult. We always have the the tendency, I think, to to tiptoe around it a little bit. And I remember dealing with that in our experience in our family. And and you had mentioned that you've had some of that experience as well. Well, and our in our culture. So I'm Iraqi. In our culture, we literally tiptoe around it where we don't say the word cancer when we refer to someone. Translated, it's loosely um, the other thing. So when you wow. refer to someone that's been diagnosed. 
you know, it, it, you'd say that they've been diagnosed with the other thing. We won't mm-hmm. say the word cancer. Mm-hmm. So that kind of influence is what I grew up around. And unfortunately, I've also lost three aunts to cancer. So this isn't an experience that I, I hate to say it, but when it came time for my uncle to deal with something like that, we were too prepared as awful as that sounds Mm -hmm. it's just it's like yeah yeah this is the luck that our family has at this point but at the same time we rallied around him in a different way I found maybe because I was older Mm -hmm. or maybe because it was um the influence of his sons his sons are you know great great guys and um educated and very realistic so Mm -hmm. the emotion that we were dealing with there was um channeled into support Mm -hmm. rather than grief and that's something that I would like to see more of yeah in dealing with cancer that it's you know it's it's a morbid topic but you automatically associate death with cancer Mm -hmm. and I think that in dealing with it it should be more so about the support that you can provide Mm -hmm. whoever has cancer I I think that's absolutely right and I think that Dr. McGee and Julie definitely touch on that that he referred to the importance of somebody having that support and that they bring at least one person with them to every appointment and and him referring to the fact that it makes him a little concerned when somebody comes uh, alone. And as your experiences and in my family as well, and I know uh, Julie and Bernie have experience and and her children as well have experienced the same thing, that it makes a huge difference to have that support system in place. And it was so refreshing to hear Dr. McGee talk about like needing your family there and talking to the patients and taking the time to allow the patient to process the diagnosis where you're so used to seeing a doctor deal with the practical aspect of it of this is the diagnosis, this is your treatment, and then this is going to be the result this way or that way. So Dr. McGee going into detail about, for example, Julie asking him his background and training and how he deals with talking to patients. We don't, I feel like no one ever talks about the kind of uh, training a doctor needs. Mm -hmm. I know bedside manner exists, but that's like the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the mental aspect that's just as painful, I would think. I mean, I've never had direct experience and, you know, I'm very thankful for that. But witnessing family members go through it, I I see the mental anguish just as much as the physical anguish. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, why don't we put more time into helping the patient process and almost even teaching the family members how to help the patient process. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point that Julie and Dr. McGee talked about that very thing about the importance of training for for new doctors. You know, it does seem as though that it has become more important in medical training over the last number of years. I liked what Dr. McGee had to say about the importance of just literally communicating the information that needs to be communicated. If, If it's not being effectively done, then is the patient walking away not fully understanding A, what's happening to them and B, what the treatment options are. And that's that's a huge problem, of course. And I really, really appreciated, like you, what he had to say about really making it a point to connect with somebody. And if he isn't able to do it, then, um, you know, working with his team to make sure that somebody is getting through to the patient to make sure that they really understand uh, what's going on. And the fact that he just notices, he notices when a client doesn't connect or doesn't process Mm -hmm. it, he goes back to that client and he, you know, kind of circles back to see if he's doing his job. And if not, you know, he brings in team members that will assist him in that. I only hope that medical schools and I'm not too familiar with medical programs, but I hope that they do emphasize the need for establishing that mental aspect that needs to be taken care of just as much as the physical. 
that article we read in The Guardian was also very um, touching. It brought me to tears at yeah. the end. <laughs> and I should just say, so Sandra's referring to um, an article from, I think, just a few days ago as of this recording. So maybe about a week ago by the time we put this episode out. And it was an interview with the actor Greg Wise about the experience he had caring for his sister as she yeah. as she went through cancer and cancer treatment. Julie was the one who alerted us to this article and we've all read it now. And as Sandra said, it's very moving and it's a really great, realistic look at what it's actually like to to be caring for somebody going through cancer and, and the experience of, of having cancer as well. Reading that article, it struck a chord with me because I, I recognize that kind of love and caring and that concern that you will have for a sibling. I grew up around that. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a great article, of course, very well written, but it was also very real. So I think that was a very symbolic way of establishing how we, the narrative around cancer and how we should be talking about it in society. In other news... Recently, a great TED Talk by New Jersey judge Victoria Pratt has been making the rounds on social media. We've had the link sent to us from multiple sources, including self-reps. In the video, Judge Pratt shares her principles of procedural justice, four simple, thoughtful steps that redefined the everyday business of her courtroom in Newark, New Jersey, changing lives along the way. When the court behaves differently, naturally people respond differently, Pratt says. We want people to enter our halls of justice and know that justice will be served there. Judge Pratt's aim is to ensure that everyone in a courtroom is treated with dignity and respect. See our podcast website for the link to the video. Capping off her time in Australia, Julie was very busy helping to organize a major conference on Muslim women last week in Sydney, where she presented a keynote address on her findings on the role of Islamic law in marriage disputes. Julie was also invited to be a guest on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's radio show, The Religion and Ethics Report. Visit our podcast webpage to find the link to this interview. Finally, Calibrate Solutions, a Canadian company working to develop practical solutions to access to justice problems, has released a survey on out-of-pocket costs of family law disputes intended to help researchers and policymakers reform the legal system. Researchers at Calibrate say... We know that family breakdown results in more costs than just lawyers' bills and court fees. This is an effort to get input from you about the other kinds of expenses you have experienced. We will use this data, combined with others' responses, to create a calculator-like tool that can quantify the costs or the savings of different changes to the law or the family court process. This will make it easier to understand the real financial impacts of family law on people's lives. The link to the survey, as well as all of the other resources mentioned in this segment, can be found on our podcast website, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. That's it for Jumping Off the Ivory Tower this week. Join us next week when our guest will be Sherry McLennan, Director of Public Legal Information and Applications at British Columbia Legal Aid. Sherry and Julie will talk about the hugely successful and groundbreaking website MyLawBC, which is changing the way people in the province access the justice system and is making waves around the world. See you next week.